Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hi, everyone. This is Lori LeBay with Alzheimer Speaks uh, Radio, and I welcome you. I'm calling from calling in from Minnesota, and it's absolutely gorgeous here today. Um, very excited about our program today. We are going to be talking about Lewy body disease, and it's, it's one of those where people talk about it but just don't quite have enough information. So I, I'm really excited about helping raise awareness because that's what we're all about here. Our goal here on the radio show is to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with dementia. And we hope to teach people how to live with the disease, not as the disease. Our channel expert, Rick Phelps, who has early onset um, Alzheimer's disease, is not going to be able to be with us today. He's at a conference, and he's out um, letting people know about his new book, (coughs) While I Still Can, which also matches the song that you heard in the opening. And um, Rick is a mover and a shaker. He is the founder of Memory People on Facebook. And if you're not familiar with it, I highly encourage you to um, just put Memory People in your search box um, when you're on Facebook and ask to join. Check it out. It's a really cool support group. um, It's a closed group, which means your comments will not be out where all of your friends and, and family can see it. It's just kept within the group themselves. And the group consists of people who have dementia, uh, those personally caring for them, as well as business professionals and advocates. And there's no pitching or selling. Um, But basically, if you've got a need, you need someone to talk to, run something by, um, there are people who are in the trenches with the disease um, willing to support you and and give their personal advice. It's it's not a medical um, advice type thing. It really is truly a community. I also want to um, let you know that you know we can't do this alone. So we need help um, from all of you and your, list, your listening um, pals out there. If you can help push the show out by liking us on Facebook or emailing it, but just letting people know that we are out here to help. And we want to hear from you. And so if you have questions or comments, um, we, would, we would love for you to call into the show. The number is 714 714- Three six four four seven five seven. Again, that's seven one four three six four four seven five seven. And you'll just have to push one to go ahead and get into my queue. You can also make a comment if you signed in through Facebook, and um, I will um, forward whatever comments or questions you might have um, to our guest today. So speaking of our guests, we have two um, wonderful ladies with us today. 
The first is Mary McGrath, and she is going to be um, primarily um, talking about uh, her, you know, her role as a wife supporting her husband Jim, who has Louis body. Um, Mary is also an author and co-author of eight educational books, um, and she has just done some amazing work. She's also one of my colleagues with the National Speaking Association, and she is just full of wonderful information for us today. Our second guest is Angela Taylor, and Angela is the Director of Programs for the Lewy Body Dementia Association. And she sees programs and services in outreach, education, and research. And Angela came to Louie Body um, first as a family caregiver in 2003 when her father was showing signs of the disease. She also serves as president of the board of directors and um, later joined the staff to continue her work serving the Louie Body dementia families. So welcome, ladies. How are you doing today, Mary? Good morning, Laurie. It's good to be here with you and Angela. Well, great. And how are you doing today, Angela? I'm doing well, Laurie. I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to your listeners. Well, great. I think what we'll do is have each of you just share uh, kind of your personal story um, a little bit more about you know how this you know how how you got into this whole Louis body mix here. And Mary, I'm going to let you go ahead and start. Can you give us a little background? Um, about um, Jim and how things kind of transformed for you? Jim and I um, met later in life. We married later in life. Uh, neither of us had children and uh, any ma- and former marriages, so I was a 40-year-old bride, and Jim was 54 when we got married in Genoa, Wisconsin. And Jim, always a very stable, steady, kind, gentle person. And still very much predictable in you know in his personality in a lot of ways, except for the disease which intervenes and interferes right now. But gradually, a few little things started to show. Uh, in fall of 2000, he had like a stroke-like um, situation. But before that, there were some things that started to appear. And we wondered if maybe an eye doctor could help him because there were some visual issues in terms of his perception, and it impacted his driving. Uh, Another thing, as things kind of got going, if he was in a mall where the floor was shiny, it kind of threw him off in terms of his bearings and what he was seeing and how he was kind of moving. And... uh, we he also had uh difficulty with the checkbook and as we as we talk on um more symptoms and I can share more symptoms but it was really really hard to diagnose and it came on more like a stroke but there was no testing that showed a stroke so it was really quite a mystery okay and he was initially misdiagnosed as having maybe alzheimers with some parkinsons which we know was not true but it was a real puzzle in the beginning Okay, and I think that that's pretty common, the misdiagnosis. But, Angela, I'm going to go ahead and let you kind of give your background, and and um, we'll we'll get into kind of some of the more specifics of the disease later here. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey with this disease? I'll be happy to. My father was an engineer by trade, and he had retired, and he retired young. So he was only in his late 50s, maybe approaching 60, 
when we started to notice that he was going through some changes, um, being an engineer, you know, he could build or fix anything he set his mind to. But he started having problems with things like using the computer or hooking up a VCR, things that were just very um, second nature to him. And, you know, we watched it for a while because it was only occasional and it wasn't consistent and, and it just, you know, it wasn't enough to be alarming. But those, you know, isolated incidents started to happen a little bit more frequently. And eventually, um, you know, we started to see Dad really not being able to pay attention. Looking back now, I realized that at the time I thought these were memory issues. But, I, but I'm realizing that it was it's just that he wasn't concentrating. He wasn't taking in information as we were talking to him about it. Um, but that he would remember things fairly clearly. So as this mild you know, um, memory concerns started to get more consistent. I uh, started talking to my dad about going to his doctor, and he started seeing his primary care doctor first about it. Uh, and eventually the primary care doctor said, you know, I think we need to go to a neurologist. So we went in and we saw the neurologist, and uh, I live out of town from my father. So I went in the night before, stayed overnight with my dad, and, and he warned me. He said, listen, you may hear some unusual sounds in the middle of the night. He says, I've been having these terrible nightmares. And you may hear me taking a shoe and thumping on the floor, or you may see that I'm up and I'm looking for something. He said, I feel like I'm being attacked in the middle of the night by creatures. And I didn't know what to think about that. This is the first time I'd ever heard anything uh, of that nature. So when we were at the doctor the next day, we talked about this occasional confusion or memory lapse, and I said to Dad, hey, Dad, while we're here, why don't you tell the doctor about these nightmares that you're having? And my dad explained that over the past year, he started to have nightly nightmares, and he wasn't sleeping well. And the doctor, after talking to him about it, said, oh, well, that's called REM sleep behavior disorder, and we can fix that with one pill at bedtime. Don't worry about it. So... He started taking this medication for the sleep disorder, which did resolve it. Um, the doctor said he had something called mild cognitive impairment, which I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. And uh, we left the office very excited that he was to- not told that he had Alzheimer's. We really thought we had dodged a bullet. Um, but as time passed, things started to get worse with the confusion. And later on, uh, he was referred for neuropsychological testing. And those tests really indicated that the cognitive deficits that he was displaying were more in line with Lewy body dementia than they were with Alzheimer's disease. Um, And in that amount of time, I had also started to do my own online research because this just did not seem like the traditional Alzheimer's disease. Dad remembered everything that he did, but he could not process information well. He couldn't solve problems, and that was very unusual for him. And, And that was really the beginnings of our journey. Okay. Well, interesting. I hear all the time about the nightmares and just how horrific they are. Um, can you, Angela, um, tell us, you know, a little bit more about Lewy body? I know it's a really complex disease, and you know, it's difficult to get diagnosed. And, and you both, you know, t- talked about that already. Um, but can you tell us, kind of in layman's terms, you know, what is Lewy body? I'm happy to do that. It is a progressive brain disease. Uh, it shares some symptoms that uh, resemble Alzheimer's and resemble Parkinson's, but it's really a unique disorder. Uh, it affects thinking and movement, um, behavior and sleep. Uh, it's a progressive disease, and unfortunately it's it's not curable. Um, 
So it is um, the second most common form of dementia after Alzheimer's, uh, as far as progressive dementias go in the elderly. And and we estimate that it affects 1.3 million Americans and their, of course, extended families uh, who have to, to live with it. Um, uh, Lewy body dementia it is not a clinical diagnosis term. That's actually an umbrella term in that it's kind of it's an overarching term that includes two clinical diagnoses, um, dementia with Lewy bodies, which is a disorder in which the dementia starts first or around the same time some movement changes uh, occur, and those movement changes may resemble Parkinson's disease. Uh, or it can start as an existing case of Parkinson's disease that later develops dementia. So these are both um these disorders are biologically related. They both share the same hallmarks in the brain, which is the presence of Lewy bodies. And these Lewy bodies are really a, a misfolded naturally occurring protein called alpha synuclein. So um they have um very similar symptoms, very essentially the same treatments, um and so we we put them under the same term of Lewy body dementia because when you really are dealing with it at the family level, the issues are very much the same. Okay. Is there a certain demographic, Angela, that, that typically gets Lewy body? It's certainly a disease that's most prominent in the elderly, you know, 65 or 70 and older. But I will tell you, we are seeing, as the disease is becoming more well-known among specialists and uh, other physicians, we are seeing it being diagnosed younger. You know, I know of adults that are diagnosed with it as early as their 40s. Um, But certainly the majority of adults are older adults. Okay. I would would think that the numbers are really underreported because, because of the misdiagnosis and just because even with Alzheimer's disease, even though the numbers are high, there's so many people that have this fear factor about getting diagnosed. And so, you know, I'm hoping that through the show and, you know, through your association and, and all of us talking about this, that, that we start removing that fear because that early diagnosis is just so critical to being able to live a, a healthy, fulfilled life. Uh, when you get the the support that you need there. So that, um, to me, is just critical. Um, would Would you say that that's correct, Angela, in terms of what you're seeing as far as early diagnosis? Um, I do. I, early diagnosis is, is essential for the family's sake. Um, we think that uh, this is a disease that should receive aggressive treatment because there's so many different symptoms, and a lot of those symptoms can be made better, and it improves the quality of life both for the caregiver and the person with the disease. So so we, we strongly encourage people to be aggressive when seeking a diagnosis for um, for any form of dementia. The earlier they get treated, the more educated the families can be, the better they can partner with their physician. Wonderful. And Mary, for you, how important do you think early diagnosis is? Well, I think it's it's very, very important. I'm sitting here and I'm listening to Angela and I'm thinking about our trip to Germany when uh, one of the drugs that Jim took later was only available there. And it turns out we were in Germany and this is when things were first starting and I had already left work. Memantine it was called then. Uh, we got him on it and it was like he had a six-month reprieve. It was like people were saying, Jim is back. And it's so important to get that right diagnosis so you can get the right medication and you can get the right physician. Oh, definitely. And if, if a physician nails this, and the sooner they nail it, 
the quicker they can get a right grouping of medications. Yeah. And the and, quality and of life of the individual becomes different. Well, in and my better. understanding, is it's hard to get that sometimes that right cocktail of of um, prescriptions because everybody is so different in terms of how the disease manifests. Is that a is that a correct statement, um, Angela? Do you see um, people manifesting this disease differently? Um, definitely at the beginning, and I think that that's. Uh, it's a perfect segue for us to talk about what those symptoms are um, so then we can then talk about the treatments. Um, okay. Everybody who has Lewy body dementia has dementia. That is the the core, um, the most central feature of the disorder. Um, but beyond that, uh, at the beginning, um, people have um, uh, varying combinations of other symptoms that allow the doctors to identify this as LBD instead of Alzheimer's. Um, and those other symptoms are uh, fluctuating cognition, which really means a, an unpredictable level of attention or alertness during the day. Um, it, it, we also see uh, recurrent visual hallucinations. People are seeing very vivid um, animals and children and things that aren't real in their everyday life. Um, they also may display Parkinson's-like symptoms, like muscle rigidity or slowness of movement. Um, in addition, REM sleep behavior disorder, like my father had, is where you're physically acting out your dreams and sometimes violently. Um, often, uh, the, this sleep disorder occurs years before the dementia starts, uh, sometimes decades beforehand. So it's a real warning sign that you may be at risk for a neurodegenerative di disease. Um, with LBD, one of the other symptoms that helps differentiate this from other disorders is a severe medication sensitivity to some of the medications that are used to treat hallucinations. And so you can imagine that creates a, um, you know, it's a catch-22. Do you treat the hallucinations so that you're improving the quality of life of the individual, or do you worsen, potentially worsen their quality of life because you've treated the hallucinations? So you have to be careful. There's, there are some medications that are more uh, risky than others, and we certainly um, uh, encourage families to become very knowledgeable about that. Um, and, and so those are the most common clinical symptoms that help doctors identify whether this is LBD versus Alzheimer's disease. Um, wow. But the kinds of medications um, that are being used are all medications that are designed initially for other diseases. So as Mary had said, you know, her husband was on um, a, a drug that was designed for Alzheimer's disease. And those are the only drugs that we have to treat cognition in LBD. Um, they are used off-label, which means they're not FDA-approved for treating LBD, but they are scientifically um, proven to be effective in helping to ameliorate some of the symptoms. So the same thing exists on the Parkinson's side. Some Parkinson's medications are helpful in LBD in, in managing the, the physical changes that come with the disease. Um, the, the hallucinations have to be managed very conservatively so that you don't um, have medication sensitivities. So there's only a few medications that are considered um, appropriate. Um, 
And then the REM sleep behavior disorder um, can be very well managed um, by using uh, drugs that are designed specifically for that disorder. Okay. Now you had mentioned that you know some of these aren't um, FHA approved. Uh, FHA. I'm talking my real estate <laughs> term here. <laughs> FDA approved. Um, so how do people access those then if they're not if they're not approved? Well, they um, they are commonly prescribed by physicians for Lewy okay. body dementia. So okay. there has been research that that shows that they are effective. That doesn't mean that they have um, that those um, pharmaceutical companies have taken the drugs to the FDA for approval um, for for an indication for use in that particular disorder. But as long as that they have been scientifically um, researched and demonstrated to be um, safe and effective, then the physicians will commonly prescribe them. Oh, okay, so I got it. So they're they're approved basically under another another situation, not Lewy body specific. Right. Okay, got it. Right, right. Like, they, to date, there is only one drug in the entire United States. There's only one drug that has an indication for cognitive uh, symptoms and Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's disease dementia has an indication for one cholinesterase inhibitor. That's one of the Alzheimer's drugs. But other than that, there's not a single drug that is FDA approved yet for LBD. And it's it's a a strong statement about the amount of research that's yet to be done to support this disease and the families that are affected by it. Wow, I did not know that. That is is really critical. That is really, really critical. And I hear so many people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's that have so many of these symptoms um, that it's just kind of amazing. Um, and, and so, you know, even just getting the physicians educated more on on this disease. Is there a certain type of uh, doctor that people should go to for diagnosis because this is a, a trickier disease? Yeah, definitely. We find that the, the primary care physician is where everybody should start when they are dealing with any kind of health issue. They should tell their physician what they're experiencing. But primary care physicians are not going to be as knowledgeable about the different forms of dementia as a neurologist. Um, there, so most LBD diagnoses right now are made by the neurologist. Um, but the neurologist may um, go through, um, they may refer people for other tests to neuropsychologists, um, psychiatrists make some of the diagnoses because sometimes the presenting symptoms are the visual hallucinations in combination with dementia. Um, geriatricians are also becoming very knowledgeable about diagnosing LBD. So we certainly uh, we encourage people to start with their family doctor, but to ask for a referral to a specialist. Okay. And, Mary, how did the process go for you when you were seeing symptoms? And you had said that you would talk about a, a few more symptoms, maybe if you can get into that, and then how how you got to the doctor and what your process, personal process was there. Yes, I'd like to talk about symptoms because I, as I listen to Angela, I'm going, yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> the hallucinations are one that is is very different, and I think as a layperson in this, it's a very shocking thing when an individual that you're close to begins to report things or has a confused perception of the world in some respects. Um, as an example, I can share about we were on um, we used to travel a lot, and we were leaving for a vacation. I probably were going to be gone for a couple weeks. 
And all of a sudden, we're sitting in this plane, and Jim looks out the window, and he said, oh, look at that man out there. And it was blue sky and clouds, as far as I could see. And and this is just a real, um, kind of a real frightening experience. And I had a couple of weeks to kind of figure, well, who do I talk to about this? What do I say? How do we deal with something like this? And I remember when I got home, calling one of my friends, and she said, and I, I really was upset. She said, Mary, pull over, pull over, and calm down. It, it was just, these kinds of things can be very, very um, confusing and shocking to a family member. And I also remember on, a, on another trip, we were out in Oregon, beautiful cabin we had along the ocean. And Jim used to get up very early for walking, and I would, I'm kind of like not a morning person, so I was not up yet. He came back to the cabin. He said, you know, there was a snake on a park bench out there. And I said, a snake on the park bench. So I said, well, let's go look at this thing. So we went over to this park bench, and it was simply a bicycle chain. But I think as I look back, this is these were part of the, the things that they would break in. And as Angela said, it, it would be occasional. And uh, I, I was also remembering, Angela, when you said that about nights and how, how that can be uh, difficult if they have a nightmare or something. And when Jim would have difficulty at night, it would be very disruptive in some ways. He he wasn't um, all upset, but it was it was a little bit disconcerting and it was uncomfortable. So I talked to, with one of my friends about this, and she said, well, why don't you put on a, the same CD all the time? And Jim always liked Frank Sinatra, so there were many nights when I listened over and over and over again to Frank Sinatra. And even during the day when things would become disoriented for him, and he might get excessively, um, oh, I don't know, he would, he would kind of get overly fearful about something that didn't make sense to be concerned about, uh, I might put that on, and then he would snap out of it. Just a simple trick of playing that same soothing CD. So these symptoms were there, and I remember one time, this was fall of 2000, I had come back from a massage, and Jim had a cold, so we went up to the clinic. And they called me over to the desk, and they said, Mrs. McGrath, your husband cannot sign his name. And I had no idea what that was about, so we were sent to the emergency room, and nothing showed up on the test. And it turned out, I mean, we weren't talking about his doctor or my doctor and his medical life. When he went to the doctor, he went by himself, and that wasn't really something I was involved in. So all of a sudden, I had to get a little more involved in that world, and that was kind of hard for me because I felt like I was interfering in a way uh, into his life because uh, he'd always been extremely healthy, and he was always he would always come back and report how well, you know, how well his doctor appointments had gone. So here I am. Uh, and he told me that his doctor had retired and he didn't really have anybody at this time. So it couldn't have been a worse perfect storm in a way. No no basic doctor and a situation that we didn't understand. So we got into the walk-in clinics until we finally got a regular doctor who was wonderful and kind of stabilized things for us. But he had an like a stroke, so things were, there was a setback there and we didn't know quite what to do, and and he really couldn't do much. And so eventually we got into more of a specialized situation. We went through the testing, and I was glad to get, you know, doctors involved. I was thrilled to have somebody help us. 
But it took a few years before somebody pointed out, and this was a, I think it was an internist, male or something, a young a young fellow who was in training, and it was the hallucination factor that made him say, this is, this is really body dementia. And I was actually really glad because it wasn't Alzheimer's. And Angela, I heard you mention that too. And people don't want to have Alzheimer's, and that's the common understanding. But this one is, is not an easy one. The body is not an easy one, and it's very complicated, I believe, and hard to treat sometimes and to find the right help. But I also remember, Angela, you talked about mild cognitive impairment, and that's the route we went, mild, and then it was moderate, and it took us a while before someone could really put us in the, on the track of the body. Now, Mary, did you ever have, or Angela with your dad too, um, you know, I've heard where people physically act out their dreams, and I mean, they can be attacking their spouses and things. So sometimes people end up sleeping in different rooms because of that, because it can be so real to them. Did you experience either of you experience anything on that order? And Mary, I didn't. Uh, first. Yeah, no, uh, no violence, no, um, no uh, agitation, really, to that extreme but confusion and upsetment. Okay. How about you, Angela? Did your dad experience anything to that extent? He absolutely did. Uh, My parents were divorced probably for 20 years when my dad got sick, but my mom told me as the years had passed, she told me that when she was married to my dad that that he would hit her in his sleep. Mm-hmm. And she didn't understand what it was, and she really thought that because they had an unhappy marriage, perhaps it was a little passive aggressiveness coming out <laughs> in his sleep. But then years later, after they were divorced, uh, he had a long-term girlfriend, and his long-term uh, girlfriend mentioned that it was he was difficult to sleep with as well, and they would wind up sleeping in separate rooms. And this was long before the dementia started. So I suspect my father had this sleep disorder um, from the time he was, 30 or so. You know, I, I hear people describe, you know, these uh, these nightmares, and, I mean, they just call them terror mirrors. And, I mean, they're so real, and they're so fearful that they're going to hurt somebody because they have no idea. Uh, um, I've had people where they said that they have been choking their spouse or, you know, Ooh. just, I, I mean, just really, you know, aggressive, and they have no idea. Um, one time somebody was talking, and they thought, they were they were choking somebody and they thought they were actually holding a football and running. That was their dream. And you know, and they were holding on to the football and dragging this person. And um, you know, so it's it's very it's a very spooky stuff and has to be taken very seriously and it's it's so interesting. I had no idea that these symptoms um were signs early on. And again, I think it's stuff that people don't talk about. They're embarrassed about it. Um, they don't know what to do, um, you know, really what's going on. And, um, you know, it, it needs to get diagnosed. It needs to, you know, you need all the support that you can get. And there is there is definitely help out there. Um, the other thing I would want to encourage people is, uh, you know, I like that you say start with your primary physician because they need to know what's going on. But don't be shy on asking for a referral or getting a second opinion. Um, if you're not feeling comfortable either, because I think um, all of us know our loved ones typically better than our doctors. And if something's not sitting right and it doesn't feel right, 
you know, you have a right to a second opinion, um, and, and you have to advocate for them because not everybody knows this stuff, and the doctors aren't any different, you know. So we've got to get, we've got to raise awareness. We've got to feel free to talk about, you know, what's really going on. And it's hard when you're trying to provide dignity you know, for them and you're trying to protect them. Um, but again, friends and family need to know in order to be supportive too. I, I know I ran into that with my own family and friends with my with my mom, and all of a sudden I realized I was kind of a culprit. I was hiding it. Well, no wonder they didn't know, you know. And then I would get mad that they didn't understand. Well, how would they, you know, if I'm not talking about it? And so I think um, I think with any of our dementias, you know, we just have to all get educated and be much more dementia-friendly and understand the variables. I'm learning so much today, and I'm in the industry. So I just I think it's just absolutely fascinating. And, again, I thank you both so much for, for sharing um, how things went. Um, what type of tests, Angela and Mary, do they typically um, do to, to figure out this disease? And, Angela, I'll throw that to you first. Okay. Well, physicians typically um, do a detailed medical history, uh, a physical exam, and they also will give um, neurological exams in the office. They'll do a series of blood tests, um, and they'll do a brief cognitive test to get a a sense of kind of globally whether the person is impaired. Um, They may send them out for certain brain scans, and they may send them out for neuropsychological tests, which are much more extensive cognitive tests to look to find out what areas of thinking and ability are impaired because it really does um, differ between the different dementias. Okay. Mary, anything you want to add there? Yes. Um, I'm thinking about this in terms of my own background because I used to be a special education teacher and I used to do these tests. And I was with the psychologist when they did the IQ tests. So all of a sudden this is jumping into my world in a whole different way. Uh, the neurological, the cognitive, the IQ, and, and then the unique one would be the memory tests. So I was I was really watching the numbers, you know, over time. It was important to me how these numbers were going, and how long they could stay, in the sense, in a certain above water, so to speak. And that had to be difficult when you know when you know enough um, to really know what they mean. I mean, sometimes ignorance is bliss. You know, as a as a caregiver in some points, but when you're anticipating, when you can, when you have that foresight, sometimes that can be a scary thing. Even though I think it's, you know, we need to go there. Um, but I think one of the things that a lot of caregivers fall into is we either worry about our past and we we feel sad that we've lost, you know, certain things or that they're going to um, fall away. Um, and life in the future isn't going to be the same, or we project our fear in the future of what's to come, and we forget about living in the moment um, with the person. And, and that's, that's hard anytime you have a chronic illness, and I think it's a really important factor and something that we have to teach people about, yes, you have to be prepared, but don't lose today being prepared for tomorrow because we don't really know what tomorrow is going to bring, and there's so many different paths that these chronic illnesses can go down. And um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in in um, 
living in the moment and you know trying to make the most out of our our education um with the disease and holding on to the relationship which which kind of brings me to my next question um I'm always fascinated how people's relationships evolve with this disease. And Mary, I'm going to throw this to you. Um, what types of changes, um, if any, did you see in your relationship with your husband due to the illness? Well, as I shared in the beginning of our conversation, Jim was always predictable. He was always in charge and stable. If he was going to be someplace at 1 o'clock, he would be there at 1 o'clock. There was never any question about those kinds of things. So that gave me a whole new freedom that I've never had in my life, to be with such stability. And so I didn't pay a lot of attention to certain aspects of life, like the yard or finances or a lot of those kinds of things that he just naturally took. Mm -hmm. And so here I am. I have to figure my way into taking charge finding help in different areas. I have to coordinate, which a lot of this I could do in terms of coordination because that's what I did as a case manager, as a special educator. Mm -hmm. So that helped me, but I had to kind of pull that into the home, which I had never never done before. Um, I just wanted to mention how, you know, a person is so distracted when this happens. Uh, It's like... He, Jim used to say the pins were pulled out from under him. And the pins were pulled out from under me also. And my focus was, the last thing I cared about would be fall cleanup in the yard. And I remember one day, I think we were pulling in maybe from a doctor or from whatever, because I usually took Jim with me a lot in the beginning, uh, wherever I went, because I didn't always have home care or whatever, and it was best that he was with, with me. We pulled up, and the neighbors, some of them complete strangers to me, were doing the cleanup. They were raking the yard. They were taking care of things for us. So there was another aspect for us to allow other people to help us Mm -hmm. and to get involved in ways that I never thought would be possible. A friend of mine, of of Jim's and mine, is still doing his medical papers. Uh, Occasionally I take her out for lunch. Um, another change in our relationship is Jim kind of managed things in the home front. And since he had retired before I did, this was his world, and, and he was a volunteer in the community and in at church and golfing with his buddies, and those those are the ways he spent his days. I was off at school. And when that day, when that day came when they told me he's got he couldn't sign his name, I I had to kind of take a leave of absence, which turned into a few months. And I remember walking out of that school, and it was like I could see a crack in the earth between that school and me in the parking lot, and I knew I could never go back to life the way I had had it before. So I retired in January 2001. And so we kind of had a routine there. I knew knew routine. I knew getting home care. We had volunteer visitors. Um, Other people came into our life as supporters, but in some ways, when you're not used to that, it's an intrusion also. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a trick to balance all of that. And if I, you know, one night I I was sick, and usually Jim would just run and get me some water or do whatever. And 
you know, those kinds of sensitivities to what I where I was vulnerable weren't always there in the same way because we had a bigger we had a bigger uh, fish to fry in a sense right there. Mm-hmm. So having to balance that and then the loss and the grief that both of us would feel and acknowledging that together and um, sharing our feelings about where this is going and what's going on and and all of that. I mean, it was a whole different whole different world. I can imagine. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. How about you, Angela? How did um, this disease affect your relationship with your dad and, and within the family, if you're comfortable talking about that? Oh, I'll be happy to. Um, and, and it really did. It had quite a ripple effect across um, not just my relationship with my dad, but it you know impacted my husband and my children and my siblings and and it was it was a difficult road there's there's no mincing the words about it. Um, my dad was always very private, um, very stoic about the challenges that life brought um, and and really kept a lot of his um, you know how he faced life challenges. He always kept that information to himself. Uh, and when LBD came, it really forced us to uh, develop a, a new level of, uh, I would say, intimacy in our relationship. We had to um, to really address very sensitive topics um, with sensitivity and candor, uh, and it was not always easy. Um, we started with small things. Uh, like Mary said, I had to start getting involved in his medical care. I had never been to the doctor with my father. I had never uh, tried to influence him on medical decisions he needed to make, certainly never on financial decisions, and all of that became necessary. So there was a true role reversal. Um, it took probably two years from us to move from uh, the time where we were dealing with some um, crisis issues that required uh, a short-term role reversal to the time where it was really permanent. Uh, as the disease progressed, it became very necessary for me to step in and become, as I said jokingly to him, his secretary in all things. Um, I worked very hard to maintain my dad's dignity and to allow him um, the, <clears throat> and I'll say this now that he's no longer living, the illusion that he was making the decisions about his life. But in truth, there came a point in time where he was not able to. I had to make the decisions, but I always made the decisions after consulting him, after hearing what he wanted. Um, as his only daughter, you know, I was the apple of my dad's eye, and that never changed. And that was that was a wonderful thing. But there were times where I could no longer do things that pleased him. I had to make decisions for him that were in his best interest that was hard for him to accept. And so I had to face disappointing my dad uh, in ways that I never had to face before. And, you know, we we presented a lot of changes in his life that we, we would couch in the terms of, we're going to do this on a trial basis, Dad, or we need to experiment because we've got some changes that, that you're going through and we've got to adapt to them. Um, so it was really important to my dad that he didn't feel like we were taking everything away from him. Uh, truly, the disease was doing this, and we had to find a way to ease him through those passages. Um, Mary talked about becoming an advocate, and, and I think, Laura, you did as well. The the need to really speak up on behalf of your loved one when they can no longer do that for themselves, 
um, becomes uh, really the core role of being a caregiver. Um, sure, you're doing the logistical caring for them, um, but you are the one now, just like as a parent, standing up for them to say, this is what they need and this is what they deserve. Um, I think as caregivers go, uh, we have a real big challenge, though, because uh, we love our family members deeply, and we want for them the very, very best that life can offer them, but that comes at a quite a cost to the caregiver. And one of the things that I had to learn to do was to create a balance. Um, what could I do for my dad that gave him as much of what he deserved as I could, but that also did not burn me out in the meantime? Because as I said, I was providing care for my two children. I think they were about four and six when my dad came to live with me. And he only stayed with us on and off through this first year when he was really in the transition from independent to no longer independent. Um, and we eventually got him settled in uh, an assisted living residence of his choice, uh, living near us instead of three hours away. And we had to all adapt and adjust to him coming to live with us. It impacted my children because uh, all of a sudden I was part of the sandwich generation. I was caring for my dad who didn't have the sensitivity and alertness and awareness to recognize when my children needed me as well. And so I was trying to care for them and care for him and be a wife and manage a household. And that was a real shift because that wasn't the life that I had built for myself. And so I had to adapt a lot of my own expectations. Um, I, I absolutely have no problems in saying there was a point in time where I really dealt with some depression. That's common in caregiving, and I think it's important for caregivers to realize that your health and your emotional well-being can be dramatically impacted by the, the role of being the full-time caregiver for someone. And so it's important for caregivers to not just see the person they care for as the only person needing medical care. They have to be equally um, uh, willing to provide themselves the access to medical care and to take the time that they need. Um, so we had a lot of readjusting to do with my dad's illness. Uh, eventually um, we found a routine that worked for us for the long time. Um, my dad, every Thursday I would take him out to lunch and every Sunday I would bring him over for dinner and everything in between that he needed that was, you know, doctor's appointments or um, social or um, and activity related, that was my job. And uh, after a time, after an adjustment period, um, it was a true, true blessing to be able to do that for my dad. Uh, it was difficult for me at the beginning, though. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard building yeah. that, you know, you know, when you've got someone who's so independent, which both your dad and Mary, your husband was, too, to kind of... Um, do that transition and build that that trust of transfer in a dignified fashion. Um, that that's not always easy to do, um, and so I, I I totally understand that. I went through that with my dad who had brain cancer and my mom with her dementia, and um, you know not always not always an easy thing. And they they were very trusting of me, and you know I was lucky that they pass things over before we really needed to get there um, in some facets. But, you know, there were times where, you know, we'd go to the financial planner and my dad was really adamant that he wanted his money in one place and, and, 
it probably wasn't the best decision. And, you know, I had to struggle with, okay, do I lay the line down and say, you know, nope, that's not a go, or do I just let him do what he wants to do because it is still his money. And um, and I was a little more lax with it. My brothers had a, had a problem. Well, what did you let him do that for? And I'm like, it's still his money, you know, and he's got to feel dignified in this process. This is a really tough thing. And we ended up talking where he didn't put all of it in there but put a portion in and, you know, it's a balance, and there's no, in my opinion, there's no right or wrong, you know, and I think a lot of times we beat ourselves up thinking there is a right or a wrong, and we just all do the best we can do in our given situations at any any set time, you know, and we're always smarter looking through the rearview mirror, <laughs> I should have done this and I should have <laughs> done that, but, you know, that, we have to get rid of those shoulda, wouldas, and couldas because they didn't happen, you know. And we can waste a lot of time, um, you know, focusing on those things and beating ourselves up. But you had mentioned the depression. I know uh, for myself, I, I went through some times, and I didn't let anybody know, but I, I would go down in my basement when nobody was home, and I would just scream at the top of my lungs. I mean, I just had to get it out. I was so frustrated. But I never told anybody, you know, how frustrated I was. I always had a smile on my face and did my due diligence and, you know, be the good daughter, and um, I, you know, because that's what I thought was expected of me. And when I look back, I mean, it was so unhealthy, and I ended up getting some health conditions that have since, you know, passed. And um, we don't understand what we're doing to our bodies and our minds. Sometimes when we take on these roles, and you know, we can't really give good care to someone else if we're not truly caring for ourselves. And when we get stressed and we get depressed, um, you know, we our attitudes change. You know, the outcomes then change because our reactions are different. And we don't even know that that's happening a lot of times. And so it, it is really important to, to have that balance. I, I tell people all the time about a story where I was so, so busy. I was so consumed with giving care to both my folks and being a mom and a wife and volunteering and working full time and, you know, we had extra kids living with us to boot and, you know, it was just kind of that psychotic time. And I had girlfriends that would say, just come and have coffee. Just just come and have coffee. And I'm like, I can't, I can't. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And I literally would run around with a clipboard with all the things I had to get done every day, every day, every day, every day. And I, I would feel empowered when I could check those items off. And one day I was just so exhausted. I was kind of thrown in the towel, and it's like, oh, forget it. I'm just going to go have coffee. I'll go for 15 minutes. And I stayed for two hours. And we laughed and we cried together. And from that point forward, every week, I met the girls because I didn't realize how drained I was. And until we give ourselves that opportunity to get filled, we just don't know. Laura, you're absolutely right. It is it is so hard to face this shift in your world by yourself and to think that you can emotionally adjust to it uh, when your entire life becomes redefined um, is, is kind of a fallacy. We have to turn to others to help us get fresh perspectives, 
to help us recharge our batteries. I will tell you there are a few standout conversations that without those few people, um, I would have battled a couple of serious demons throughout my dad's illness. Um, I had a very difficult time um, making a few decisions on his behalf, and it was through talking to people who had been there, done that, um, that really gave me the ability to stop listening to the shoulda, couldas, and wouldas. And uh, I'm a firm believer in making sure that families never go through this by themselves. To reach out to people who have walked down that road or a very similar road makes all the difference. Oh, it's huge. I mean, I can't believe I got emotional talking about that. That was (laughs) my dad has been dead 11 years. And so this was probably 13 years ago, but I still remember the emotions of that day. It was such a turning point. And it was was one of those things where I didn't... um, you know, I just didn't think I was worthy to to take care of myself, that it would look bad, you know, that I had no right. And, my, you know, my belief in that has totally changed, totally, totally. You know, there's a reason in, in an airport that they tell you, to, you know, in an airplane rather, to put on your own oxygen mask first before you help the person next to you. Yeah. There's a reason, yeah. and we have caregivers have to realize that we are as important to take care of as the person that we love who has dementia. Yeah, because if we're not healthy, we can't help them. And we all no, understand no. that on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level. Um, you know, it's not something, caregiving is not something that is taught. I mean, we're starting to um, finally in society, but... You know, for me, you know, I'm going to be 53 here this week, and, um, you know, I was brought up to give care to others. I mean, that was my role as a girl from a young, young age, and I just moved forward with that, and then I just kept taking care of more and more people, and I took care of everybody but myself. It was I was never taught to take care of myself. I was taught to be respectful, and I was taught to be a good person and right and wrong, but I was never never really taught to take care of my myself or how that is done um, when it comes to the emotional balance of, of giving care. So it's it's very interesting how we how we raise our kids. And I even see it with my daughter. My daughter has taken on that role of caring for everybody and you know I, I had a big epiphany where I really really realized that there was a huge difference between enabling and caregiving and what I found out when I was giving care to my folks which I was truly giving and I don't know maybe this happened to you guys too but all of a sudden others wanted me to care for them and help them out because I did it well and those people typically I wasn't giving care to I was enabling Um, but I think I think that that happens a lot to people as well you kind of get in that role of the fix-it person and coming off as as in control, and you can handle everything. Did either of that? Did that happen to either of you, Mary? Did that happen to you at all? You know, I, I'm I'm sitting here listening, and I'm writing down a lot of thoughts as I'm listening to this conversation about the emotional life of the caregiver. And Laura, you were talking about you know screaming and all of those kinds of things, and I I think that's good to be able to let it out. 
in, in whatever way you can. I mean, if it if it means going to a support group, and I think later Angela might want to talk about the resources that the organization has. But I highly value my Louis Body support group because before I before that I just didn't have a, a group that really got it. Um, it's important to talk to people who are mature, who are friends, who are professionals, who understand. Um, and also, like you were talking about, put yourself first. And I was thinking this morning, you know, I call. I made a couple calls this morning. One of them was to the handyman not to come because we can't have noise around the house today. <laughs> but the other, the other one was to call my clinic because I had some questions about this medication. Uh, I have gone forever without too much, you know, in the medication world other than supplements. You know, I, I had a drug for osteoporosis, and they took me off that. So I'd been bragging, hey, I don't take any drugs, and all of a sudden, you know, I had a blood pressure, and I had a, I got a thyroid thing going now. Um, so I'm trying to learn about this and understand this, but, you know, I, I have an appointment tomorrow because I don't understand something about this new medication, and I don't want to take something if I don't understand it. So, um, you know, I felt good when I when I was listening to your conversation that I'm on top of my own kinds of things too because like where you said it can it can really hit you in so mm-hmm. many ways and you got to watch um and so if if I need to cry I have to cry I mean this is a grief process here um for me this has been going on since fall of 2000 when it really hit it is 2012 yep. um so I I've had to really really pace it and watch it and uh this kind of brings me back to um when Jim was still home and getting him in an adult day program so that I had some time or having home care in so that I have time or using all these resources that are available. And for my own sake as well as for my husband's sake, I I used to want to keep things as normal as possible. And still now I, I try to do things in as close a way that resembles what we used to do as possible, even though he's in a nursing home right now. Um, another thing, you were talking about, you know, in a sense, your public image. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to go around looking sad, but at the same time, I think if I get too silly, they'll think I don't care. So that's mm-hmm. my my trap. And another thing about being in public uh, that I think is really, really important is modeling how I treat my husband. Because mm-hmm. if somebody stares, what does that say? So I look right back, or I'll smile, I'll look at them with confidence and say, hey, this is, in my mind, you know, this is the world here. There are people who have issues. They are in wheelchairs. So um, that, to me, is, is the respectful treatment of, of Jim is important because then it shows other people how to come up to him, how to... In- I, you know, I invite the same behavior from others, so that's a key. And then uh, thinking back to uh, when when this really first hit, it was around the time of 9-11, and I was having a parallel 9-11 at home. And this kind of connects with what you were saying, Angela and Lori, your experiences too. This is a big 9-11 in your lives. It's a big switch. It's a big hit. It is it is a huge hit. And regrouping and you know, being able to stay the course and hold in there and yet 
be good to yourself and know that you're valuable and that you are the key and, and you have to treat yourself that way. Because if you don't, what's going to happen? You know, I, I have to be that person for him because I'm his wife. And, you know, it, it makes it makes so much difference what I do. You know, I, I, I realize there's a lot of importance in, in this role. And it's not something you say, well, gee, when I'm such and such an age, I'm going to do this. These things aren't part of the career plan. They're not part of the life plan. These things happen. And we open ourselves and we, we flow with that and we ask for help. You know, we, we, we get help from others, but we also have a faith life, as uh, Angela, you referred to in the beginning. And also I, I heard you say something about you felt like this was the thing that, you know, was part of the plan for you in, in a sense. And for me, one of my friends said, gee, you know, your career, I had been in special ed. And so I had the wherewithal in a lot of ways to do things that maybe some people didn't particularly have, but people draw on all their background experiences and all the things that they know how to do, and um, whether they're a good organizer or whether they're good at finances or whatever, they pick it up and kind of go with it that way. But always with that sense of, you know, I have to take care of me as well. I'm, I'm a big part of this whole this whole process. Well, that's, so. that's good advice. Um, good comments uh, that you, you brought up. So I appreciate you, you adding those in there. Um, can you, you know, you talked about your support group um, being right. important to you. Can you talk a little bit about what, you know, I'm sure there's confidentiality with your support group, but but what do you get and why is it worth going? Because I know a lot of times, you know, when I recommend a support group to people, they just look at me like, that is the last thing I've got time to do, you know. It's like I, I don't have, and someone said this just the other day, I don't have an hour to to escape plus my drive time to get there. So what, what what do you get that makes it worth the escape, I guess, um, to maybe try to convince others that it's worth their time? Well, it's important for me not only to share what's happening with people who I don't have to explain anything to. They just get it. If I talk about something that's going on at the care center or something that's going on in Jim's cognition, if something's going on in my heart and mind, I don't have to go through 20 hoops to explain it. Mm -hmm. It's just a given that they understand. And let's say a new person comes in and I can see where they're at and I know where they're at. And I don't always think back. I'm kind of here with what's going on now. But I think it's good for me to go back and realize from whence I've come, in a sense, to credit myself for being that younger version who was in shock, who found a way through certain levels and stages, and to be able to offer my story to them so that they can understand what's happening. Um, it's, a, it's a very uh, place. It's a place of respect. But it's also a place where you can just say, "Hey, this is this is hard. This is mm-hmm. difficult. I don't like dealing with this. I don't like having to say this um, to a, a doctor or to a nursing home person. Uh, it's just frustrating. Or I, I've had it with this. 
or hey, I really did well with that, or you know, getting a sense of of being affirmed and just belonging. It's social too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's social with with the full part. You know, the the real thing. Because you, if you haven't lived this, I don't know um, if you really get it. Mhm. Okay. I I um I get that a lot with um you know I have the memory cafes that we brought over from the the UK and people say exactly what you're saying. You know, it's just a comfortable place. It's a new. It's just that new um, close group that you feel so safe. And there's no you know you don't have to make any excuses. You don't have to worry about what people are thinking. It's just a very accepting group mm-hmm. um, that's mm-hmm. very supportive and that allows you to give support to others as well. And um, it, it is. It, it can be absolutely amazing. Um, I know I didn't tap into the Alzheimer's support group. I was just too psychotic, I guess, <laughs> at the time with my little check checklist and stuff. But I rem- I'll never forget the day I went a group just to listen to another speaker and that speaker didn't show up and then they just had a regular group and I'll never forget um, the facilitator asking one question and that one question was what do you miss the most in your relationship mm. and mm. I just started bawling and I thought oh, I gotta go yeah. to the support group <laughs> you know and I started after that, I started going, and for me, it was a hug. My mom can't hug me anymore, you know, because she just she can't move her arms. And I didn't I didn't realize the amount of loss that I was hiding, um, and just pushing forward through. And what a great group that is, you know, just absolutely fantastic. Lori, um, I think you just hit the nail on the head there about the value of support groups. Is it? that when you're early in caregiving for somebody with dementia, you're already going through the beginnings of grief. Your world mm-hmm. is shifting, your expectations, your fantasies of what the future was going to hold are very much um, at risk. And as you go through it, you realize that those dreams are now um, no longer an option. And you have to grieve the relationship. You have to grieve the the logistical realities. You have to You have to grieve so much as a caregiver, and often there are feelings that we can't put into words. We don't realize that we're feeling until somebody else articulates it. Mm -hmm. And when you go to a support group and you listen to the other people's stories, you realize that they are putting voice to feelings that you haven't really even admitted to yourself yet. And it Mm -hmm. allows you to begin to process those feelings. Um, It also helps you realize you're not crazy, that you're seeing and experiencing experiencing some things in your loved ones that are specific to the disease, but you cannot separate is this the disease or is this them being difficult. And when you realize that other families are going through the same thing, you start to be able to separate the disease from your loved one. And they're two different creatures. You love your loved one. You hate the disease. Yep. Yep. Very, very good point. Now, um, Angela, does Louis Body Association have various support groups around the country then? We do, we do. Our programs and services are designed to do three different things. Um, One, to educate and support LBD families. 
Um, mm-hmm. Two, to increase public awareness and provide resources to healthcare professionals who are serving the LBD constituents. And then three, to increase research funding. Um, so for families, uh, we have a couple of programs that are very, very helpful. Uh, we have our national network of support groups, which uh, right now there are only about 100 on our website, but uh, every month new support groups are starting. So we encourage anybody who has an interest in launching a support group to serve LBD families to contact us through our website. Um, We have uh, an online community for those who are not able to get out, as you said, because they can't find that hour. We have an online community that has about 3,000 LBD caregivers that are participants, and you can look for common experiences. You can ask questions. What does somebody else do in this situation? This is what I'm seeing. Is this normal? And you can get that sense of, okay, um, they can help fill in the missing pieces for me that I may not know about yet as, an, or as a new caregiver. Or I'm at a new stage of the disease and, I, and I'm not entirely sure what resources I'm going to need. So I can turn to the community. Um, we have a resource called the LBD Caregiver Link, which is really a peer-to-peer support service. It's an answering service, and we uh, assign volunteers to return phone calls one-to-one to to caregivers across the country. So we help people connect with other LBD caregivers in a variety of ways, both online, in their communities, and through the phone. Um, But I think the the best place families need to start is on our website. We have a tremendous amount of educational material that really helps them understand the disease, the symptoms, the treatments, when to flag something to the doctor. This isn't right. I don't understand why this is happening. Is there, um, you know, can we address this new problem? Um, So I think from an educational standpoint, uh, that is as important as as finding that that support from other caregivers. Yep, definitely. Well, it sounds like the, the website is definitely the place for people to go um, along with, of course, uh, visiting their doctor if they if they think that there are some some issues and want to learn more information with this. Um, I know a lot of people just you know Google stuff, and and a lot of times I, I think that can be a little dangerous um, in terms of you never know what you're what you're getting for information out there. And I I think it's nice to be able to go to associations that have a firm handle on this that can really offer you solid support and and direction. Um, So I appreciate all that the Lewy Body Association is doing for for all of us. Um, I would like to ask, um, you know, how, if there's a way that, you know, I can help as Alzheimer's Speaks and um, and our audience, you know, how can we help raise awareness for what it is you're doing? Uh, Well, we have just launched our national awareness movement. This is the third year where we have been working to mobilize people at the grassroots level to raise awareness in their communities. Um, And the various ways that we're asking people to do that is to um, deliver literature to physicians' offices, to tell their personal LBD stories to the media, to organize educational events and fundraising events 
so that the general public hears about those through the media and they become more uh, aware that LBD exists and that it is a very important public health issue. Um, you can uh, participate in the awareness movement by visiting our website, lbda.org. Um, right on the home page is, is a picture that invites you to, to click there and to join the movement and sign up. Uh, LBDA can uh, will send you a toolkit about the awareness movement that talks about the activities that uh, are being um, launched in communities across the country and uh, will provide uh, free resources to you as the summer progresses. We've designated October as LBD Awareness Month, and so we're starting now the, the sign-up process so that people can um, start receiving materials from us over the summer and start planning their events for October. So there's a tremendous amount that everybody can do, um, whether it's talking about LBD on social media or making a donation to LBDA or launching a support group in their community or um, uh, really we're developing a speaker's kit that will give them a PowerPoint presentation and speaker's notes so that they can actually make presentations in a workplace to their coworkers or at a long-term care facility uh, or, or creating an event in collaboration with somebody like a long-term care facility that's then promoted to the general public. So we've, we've created an entire um, set of resources for volunteers to use to help raise LBD awareness. Wow, that is fantastic. That's absolutely wonderful. Well, good. We'll have to talk some more and um, <laughs> see, how I can, see how I can help you. I'm in the process of getting ready to launch a, a new website that I think um, we can give you some, some exposure on there. So that would be, that would be great. Um, I'm you. just wondering if, um, and we've we've touched on this a little bit, but um, but I'd like to go a little bit deeper. If the two of you would feel comfortable sharing some of the positive and the negative aspects of the disease and how it's affected your relationship, um, because I think a lot of times we don't talk about the positive. We talk, we focus more on the the negative and the. You know, we're coping with this and coping with that, but a lot of times there's just kind of this realm of peacefulness that all of a sudden we get to um, once we've accepted the disease and things have changed. And has that happened, um, you know, with either of you? And, Mary, I'll, I'll throw that to you first. Okay. Uh, the question about, you know, the positive, I can see Jim when I walked in his room, was it yesterday? There's just a there was a brightness in his face, um, just a gladness that I had walked in, mm-hmm. and you know it's it, like you were talking about going deeper. Um, you know, there's that connection that we have that is not going to be interfered with, despite this disease. And when he understands something I'm talking about or when we can connect. If I mention something that we knew in the past, and I'll get a little a look or an expression of, of awareness, something like that, which is so precious to me, wouldn't, wouldn't have been a big deal in the past as much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that uh, there's a loving heart there in him, Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to start getting you know, feeling more emotional <laughs> like you did before. Um, that is that is a great gift, and you know in the past I might t- have taken a lot for granted, 
And, you know, if you, if you look back, I, I wish I hadn't taken things for granted, but I didn't know that I wouldn't have these things. Uh, and so to treasure these things as I do is really, really a gift. And um, if I see a couple, let's say they're out for lunch or they're going for a walk, doing something really typical, I think that's really something. And if there's any way I can encourage others to value these things while they can, when they can, as they can, that would be important for me. Uh, In terms of the negative part, you know, we've talked about those things, and I think for me it's, it's the unpredictability. I will want to talk to Jim, and he'll start to respond, and and I think, well, this is going to happen here. We're going to have this conversation, even if it's a simple conversation. You know, this might, you know, which isn't very often anymore. Um, then he might close his eyes, and and he'll just kind of drift off. And it's that attentional thing that Angela was talking about—the ability to focus and to stay connected. And that's that's a really hard thing because you go forward and you go close and then someone can't stay there with you. Um, that that's really hard. And and Jim's virtue has always been the listener. Uh, that's mm-hmm. been something that people have always valued in him so highly. And I really want to be able to share with him, but I can't sometimes when I would like to. Um, and then on the practical side, I just wanted to connect this. Uh, I'm trying to find some bonds, savings bonds, mm-hmm. that he should have had and, and they're not in the safe box. And my my financial person and I don't know where they might be because I don't recall ever being told that they were cashed in or whatever. And so it would be so nice if I could just say, Jim, where did you cash these in? And I can't get quite of an answer. I can get sometimes an expression, but, you know, I can't expect those things. And you were talking about acceptance. And there is that level and there is that point where you have to value those things that are there and really, really love and cherish those moments and review them in your mind that aren't frequent but are so big of a deal when they occur. You know, that bright look in his big blue eyes, I'll take it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to break in for a second. We're getting a little bit of an echo, so I don't know if somebody has a computer on in the background, but I'm hearing a, an echo sound, and I'm not quite yeah, sure Yeah, I hear that, that too, and I, I don't know. I, I've been sitting here the whole time, so and there's nobody here, so I don't. Yeah, so I'm not quite sure. I don't quite know how to. Me either. Um, I'll okay. switch phones to see if that helps. Okay. Okay, is that any better? Yeah, that actually is. <laughs> okay. Oh, nope, there it is. It's back again. So I'm not I'm not quite sure um what the deal is there, so I apologize on that, but uh, yeah, I think it is those small little moments that you you really end up connecting with and appreciating so much um that in our busy fast lives we we oversee. How about you, Angela? Well, you know, I think I think Mary has has really identified something and that is the fact that there are lots of moments um that you would have missed in in everyday life if they were well um there were times where we had so much incredible tenderness that that because I was providing care for my dad there was physical proximity there was emotional proximity and and 
life with him well never afforded those. And, you know, they were exquisitely beautiful moments. Um, There was also a tremendous amount of laughter. You know, this disease Mm -hmm. is just, sometimes you have to laugh at it, especially when you're looking at some of the the hallucinations and illusions and delusions. Uh, Very, very funny stuff can come up. And, you know, my dad and I would find a way to, to turn something that normally would be uh, upsetting. Sometimes we would just have to laugh at it. So, um, you know, that's a blessing. One of the things that um, I think is challenging in diagnosing LBD is that it often people who have LBD may also have some of the changes uh, in the brain um, that are hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. And so you literally can have two disease processes going on at once. And and the reality is, is at least half the people who have Alzheimer's disease have some of the biological changes of Lewy body dementia in their brain. That doesn't necessarily mean they have the clinical syndrome or all of the symptoms, um, and vice versa. Most people who have LBD have some of the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's in their brain. And so uh, it's very common for these, these disease processes to coexist. And I think you will also see a lot of people that, who will manifest some of the clinical symptoms of both disorders. In my case, I don't know that, that dad really exhibited any of the traditional Alzheimer's symptoms. And like Mary, my dad knew me to the end. And when I would walk mm-hmm. in the room, my dad would light up because mm-hmm. there was, I, I was the bright spot in his day. You know, he was living in long-term care. And when family came, and because I was the, lo- the most local family, he saw me the most, and I was his anchor. I was his security blanket. And there's nothing that I would, you know, trade for that look in my dad's eyes uh, when I walked in the room. Um, but I think that, that learning to be very present and just stilling the voices about worrying about the future and regrets about the past and what may or what may not come uh, in the future and the, the regrets that you feel because of that, um, and learning to be present was a big gift. It wasn't something I knew how to, to do very well before my dad got sick. Uh, and it's something I had to learn to, to get through LBD. So, so there are a lot of, um, it, I'd say it's, it's a mixed bag, blessings and, and challenges. Yeah, the, the being present um, to me has been the biggest gift with dementia. And I always thought I was present, which makes it even funnier. And I realized how distracted I really was and how much I multitasked in everything that I did. And I just don't do that now. And it's it's amazing the difference. Well, I think that's exactly what Mary was saying about take that time now. Go for the walk with your loved one. You never know when you're going to lose that opportunity. Um you know, it could be a disorder, it could be an accident, it could be anything. So if if we don't live the life that we have today, we may not live it tomorrow. Definitely. Now, Mary, um, we were going to talk a little bit about how Louis Body has affected Jim physically and and also regarding his speech. Could you right. expound on that a little bit? Right. I'm just still reeling from this last last run of the conversation, and being a multitasker, I'm still struggling with the presence and the value of that presence and when that happens. And it's good for me just to be part of this discussion to continue to encourage myself to slow down and 
continued to gather that more than more than ever, more than I have. Uh, you're talking about physically and, and that connection with people that comes from speech. Now, physically, uh, I'll just say that when his brain would want him to get up and do something, it it can't. He can't walk right now. He can't really. He can't do anything for himself. So he's in a in a hard spot, and he had has had many pneumonias, and he's made it way his way through some of these these difficulties. Initially, he had a tube for just a few days, and then it would go in and out. But with the way his his attention fluctuates, he has to have that all the time because when he eats or when he gets his, his, let's say he's eating, and if his attention would go, that could be dangerous for choking. So he's a he's a feeding tube person right now, and that has been great. He looks really, really good, and he's getting a very balanced uh, nutritional program through that. But with the speech, um, I always write down a journal and a log so when we go to the doctor he can see what Jim says. And I think it really validates that Jim is there. And we forget that sometimes if someone isn't speaking and he isn't rattling on and on like I tend to do in our in our times together. I, I talk more than, than I do in a lot of situations because I'm not getting much back or sometimes I, I don't, I'm just silent with him. But I'll just share some of uh, the vignettes with, with you that we've had. This comes from September in my log. And Jim and I had traveled in Italy where I have family. And I mentioned to him it was raining in Varese, Italy. And we were there. And he said, yeah, yeah. Or when we go to church together, and, and that's a very meaningful time because there's a bus that comes to the care center and takes us to church. And at communion, there's a certain thing we say. And I, I would say to him, as I give him, he can have a little crumb of communion. I would say, Jim, this is the body of Christ. And one day he said amen, which was a thrill just to hear him being totally appropriate with that circumstance and understanding. And the other one time in September, he was making some noise, and I said, why are you making that noise? And he said, oh, I think it's probably a habit. And it was so right and so insightful. And the other day, uh, I said, yesterday, Jim, are you ready for a nap? Yeah. And I think the surprise with speech is that it comes in such an unexpected way. And, you know, you entitled this, you use the word laughter in the title of our of our gathering today, and uh, I just had a couple things that that just struck me as so funny. And Jim got the giggles in both of these situations, and it was the Jim I always knew when he'd laugh. And again, it's it's part of the precious gift, and it's part of that that physical change. That uh, it's the idea that things break in, that the the real person breaks in to the silence of the disease. And we were at we were at our little church service at the care center, and the priest told a silly story. Jim got the giggles, and people delighted in seeing him get the giggles because he caught on, he caught it. And then one day uh, we were in his room, and we can hear what's going on in the halls. And a couple of the staff people were having this conversation, which was an absurd conversation. It was not a work-related conversation, and it was so funny. And he was catching on to that and laughing. And it's the beauty of, of this is that he gets the social and he understands the nuances. And there isn't a, a dullness. But when the person breaks through, there's the person that I forgot was here 
returning in, in a new way. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to explain that, but I think people who are around the disease will will be able to know what I what I mean when I talk about there's a there's a an opening there's an opening between us and between him and the world, and we get to see him come forth. Some parts of him come forth again. So that's a that's a great gift. Oh, that's that's definitely a gift. Definitely a gift. Very very neat. Um, my mom does that at times too, and it's just out of the blue, and it just it just warms your heart. I mean, you can't really even summarize it in words when you have those moments. And um, sometimes with her, I mean, we we've always used a lot of humor in our um, in our relationship and stuff. And sometimes she will just do the funniest things just to get a reaction. And other times it'll be a word or maybe a short sentence that's just so appropriate and so articulate for the conversation. And you just kind of go, wow, because there is that one part of you that goes, you know, am I making any sense? Are they hearing me? You know, because sometimes you don't know. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's just there and it's, it's uh it's such a gift. My mom one time said my name <clears throat> and she hadn't said my name in like three years. Mm-hmm. And I, I, just I get that. Down, I just sat down and bawled and bawled and bawled because it was just such a gift. And you you don't realize how important all those little things are until they're gone. And then when they reappear again, it's just it's just incredible. It's just. It, it, the disease, and again, I haven't dealt personally with Lewy body, but you know, with Alzheimer's disease and my dad with um, with his brain tumor, um, it's just given me a much better appreciation for life, and I I now live with much more gratitude in my life than I have ever lived, um, and it's almost it's it it just has given me such a sense of peace in terms of letting go and accepting things, um, that it's it, it, it's just it's totally changed my life, how I look at the world, how I interact with people, um, what I want out of the life. Um, material things don't matter to me at all anymore. Um, you know, it, it's 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 been life changing for me. And I look I look at the disease really as a gift, that it was here to teach me to live differently and to be more compassionate. And I've always been a very compassionate person, but this is at a whole different level for me. Anyways, so, um, well, this has just been such an interesting conversation um, with both of you, and I I appreciate your time so much um, with all of this. Uh, Is there anything that you want to add as far as how friends and family have reacted to this disease over time? And Angela, I'll throw that to you first. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think most people are uncomfortable in in continuing a relationship with somebody with dementia because the person that they know is altered. And, you know, we watched my father's um, social life change tremendously as his disease progressed. Um, the It was only his closest friends and his closest relatives who who truly remained engaged with him and sought him out. Um, 
as he progressed into dementia. And by the time it was, you know, we were approaching the end of his life, we were down to, you know, only a handful of people who really were active participants. Um, so, I, you know, having never known anybody with dementia before my father got sick, I understand that it's awkward. And if I hadn't lived every day of this journey with my dad, I don't know how I would have been going up to him and interacting with him if I had only seen him every six months or once a year or every, you know, um, three years. It really is a shock to the system. And I watched my family grieve, especially those who lived far away, when they would come to see my dad and really come face-to-face with the shock of how much had changed since the last time they saw him. Every visit was painful. Every goodbye was possibly the last one. Um, because you don't know how much would change before the next visit. Would he remember you? Would he know what was going on? Would he be able to interact with you? Um, and it's it's just a difficult road. Um, I am, I feel fortunate to have been there with him throughout his journey because I never had those big major shocks of change. Um, it, but it was a, it was a little bit of a daily goodbye though. So. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, it definitely, definitely is. How about you, Mary? Well, I'm I'm thinking back to when this first started, and so many people from our our local Burnsville church community and friends were so caring and and so involved. But Jim isn't here now. He's in a different city. He's about a half hour away in a care center. And it's kind of a circuitous route as to how he got there, but there was an opening and we needed to place him out of the hospital. So it's different. And what we've, what I'm discovering is that there are people who have been, again, he's been gone from the house six years. They have to visit him almost every week for these last six years. And these are a couple fellows that are friends of his from the church here in Burnsville. Uh, one of my friends goes to Winona to see her mom, who's, you know, in a situation, living situation down there, assisted. And she stops in to see him as well. Jim's family is all living in in distant places, but when they could physically come, they did. His one sister is coming in a couple weeks. She's from Colorado, and she's older than Jim, and it's our 25th anniversary, so she is going to join us for that occasion. And he'll be coming home for that day for about an hour, and I've invited, I'm going to be inviting people from around here, some old friends. So I've brought him, I've brought him here to church on occasion too, and that's important. But people haven't seen him in a long time, and I can relate Angela with that. That it's hard for them because they haven't seen it progress in the same way that it's typical for those of us who are around. But I, I really admire and appreciate the loyalty of these couple guys in particular who are there, rain or shine, in the dead of winter sometimes, uh, uh, typically on, on, a, on a weekly basis. And yet there are some people whose lives, you know, they're busy, and it's hard for them to get down there. And then we have people who come from out of town. We have a, a couple of, of friends, Jan and Dennis, who live in Arizona, and when they're in Minnesota, by golly, they come to see us. His, old, his former boss is, and his wife have been to see us, and they come from Florida. And so people from out of town, nieces from New York have been through. Uh, various various people who surprise you come from from a heart, a 
cousin of mine, a mother's from California, and her husband stopped over to see him. So people from far away will will make that effort. And I think sometimes they they're doing it for both of us. It's 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 about visiting both of us for for some people, and it helps me to just be around them. And whoever they are, a family, when they bring their little kids, that's fun occasionally when we, we've seen them too come. Uh, it, it really not only perks Jim up, but it, it's helpful to me. And I, I don't know if people always think about that, that the caregiver really, it's a really big deal when somebody joins joins in. So oh, I, I really appreciate that. Definitely. Well, it, I mean, we're all social creatures, and... Um, that's a that's a big piece of who we are, and so yeah, I think it is really a, a dual fitting purpose. Well, I want to um, just you know kind of wrap up this show here, but I wanted to see if there was anything else that either of you wanted to cover um, to make sure that we we got everything out that we wanted. Other than I know we definitely need to do contact information. Angela, was there anything else that you wanted to um, have our listeners um, hear or learn? Well, I think when it comes to LBD, the, I think the real key points are, you know, seeking an early and accurate diagnosis, um, which, again, is going to require a referral out to a specialist. It's being aggressive with the medical care to ensure you're treating as many symptoms as possible, um, but to be you know, to become very knowledgeable about the medication sensitivities. It's not just the medications that treat hallucinations that can be problematic for people with LBD. Certain medications to treat Parkinsonism can can worsen the hallucinations. Certain over-the-counter medications can reduce their cognitive functioning. So it's 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 a very delicate balance in, in treating LBD symptoms so that you're not worsening other symptoms or reducing their cognitive ability. Um, there's also a sensitivity to anesthesia in a lot of older patients. And so we encourage families who are dealing with any kind of cognitive impairment um, to really talk to, if they have to have some kind of surgery, if, they, if their loved one needs surgery, to talk with the anesthesiologist about whether or not um, there's an option that's an alternative to a traditional general anesthesia, whether it's a spinal block or conscious sedation, uh, because we have uh, we hear regularly that when an older person with a cognitive problem has to go under general anesthesia, um, they will either have a prolonged period of confusion after that they come out of the surgery that eventually will return back to their normal baseline or they may never get back to their baseline. They may have kind of a stepping off in cognitive abilities that just simply they don't recover from. So so I think it's important that everybody uh, who's dealing with somebody who's older, who's having surgery, that they make sure they um, they care for that person's cognition um, just by being aware of the fact that some of these other medications can be problematic. Um, And I think, uh, again, not going through dementia by yourself, um, being in tune with other caregivers who have gone down the road before, um, looking early in your community for the resources that you need uh, is essential. You know, if you're waiting until a crisis happens to find out what resources are in your community, you're waiting too long. So do your homework early. Look for um, long-term care facilities. Look for case managers, like geriatric case managers. Look for home health aides or home health nurses. Look for respite care. 
Um, if you need to go away and, and maybe there's a family member who's getting married in another city and you want to be able to go to that wedding and your loved one's unable to travel, how can you provide them with safe, appropriate care and still go to that event? Um, but seeking out local services that will make your everyday caregiving role easier and, and looking to the area uh, agency on aging and other local um, uh, organizations who who can point you in direction uh, of good resources in your community. I think that's essential for the, for the families who are dealing with LBD or any dementia. Okay, great advice. And what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Is that through the, the um, website? Yes, we encourage people to visit the Lewy Body Dementia Association's website at www.lbda.org. Um, you can call our um, national office if you are looking for programs and services. Um, the, the best thing to do is to call our LBD caregiver link, and that's 1-800-539-9767, um, or to email LBDA at LBDA at LBDA.org. Okay, wonderful. And, Mary, how about you? Is there anything else that you would like to add? Yes, I have four quick points. The first is that you can be a friend to someone with Lewy body or with dementia at any age. My mother is 94 and has visited Jim. People send cards if you can't get there. That is important to hear from people. Second, they do have cognitive ability. And how I have seen it in Jim is his varied ways that he has said yes or no. And I'll just quickly share a few samples. He has said supposedly, he's responded with it's fine with me, not immediately. Sure, I would say so. Not particularly. Yes, I would. Absolutely. Now why would I want to do that? So that variation tells me that personality is there and cognition is, is in strong in, in some places. And that reinforces my third point, that they are there. I was showing him pictures of rocks and minerals, which is a former hobby of his, his, and he closed his eyes. And I said, am I boring you? And he responded by saying, it might seem like that from your side. <laughs> so there is there is life and, and there, are, there is a presence in there. And um, my website has some articles that I have done. This is my fourth point www.maryz, like in zoo, McGrath, M-C-G-R-A-T-H, dot com. So I have written articles that come out of my experience that anyone is welcome to look at. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. And, you know, I put out there if there were any um, questions that people had, but we didn't get any callers and I didn't see any comments on the on the Internet here. So we'll give a couple of minutes while I go into the closing in case anyone does decide that they want to call in. Again, the number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. In the meantime, I just wanted to um, let you know about some upcoming shows that we have. On the 7th, I'll have Bailey with us. And Bailey's a teenager, and she's going to talk about what life is like with um, a parent with dementia. Her dad was diagnosed when she was 13 years old. 
And then we're going to have Lisa Snyder on on the 14th, and she's going to talk about living your best with early-stage Alzheimer's. And then on the 28th, um, I'll have Chris Morissette with us on hospice and palliative care. So I've got a lot of um, great episodes coming, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, to those shows as well. In the meantime, if you happen to be memory impaired and you're interested in sharing your story with the world, please let me know. I'd love to have you as a guest on the show. Or if you are a care partner or business professional making a difference, um, I'm always interested in hearing new perspectives. This show is all about giving voice and raising awareness. And we can't do that alone. So I would love to hear from you. And it doesn't look like we have any any questions or comments, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and close the show and just remind people to remember the three things that your memory chip teaches us. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? And thank you again uh, to Mary McGrath and Angela Taylor for spending so much time with us today on the show. Thank you all, and look forward to talking with you soon. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.